Hello, and welcome to Entangled, the podcast where we explore the science of consciousness, the true nature of reality, and what it means to be a spiritual being having a human experience. In today's episode, I interview my new friend, Nirmali, and her husband, Jeremy, who I've known since high school. In this episode, Nirmali and Jeremy discuss how their lives interacted and led to their marriage after Jeremy grew up in the suburbs of Cincinnati and Nirmali grew up in Nagaon, India. Jeremy discusses how his passion for entrepreneurship and textiles led him to start Studio Bagru, while Nirmali's desire to live a life of purpose gave her the confidence to drop out of dental school and pursue cooking and Ayurvedic medicine instead. From there, we talk about how Jeremy's spiritual journey evolved in India after he and Nirmali got into asana yoga. We further dive into the definition of yoga, the guru tradition in India, and why the culture of guru is less accepted in the West. From there, we discuss ideas of death, rebirth, social entrepreneurship, and the importance of protecting the intellectual property of design created by artisanal craft workers. Note, we recorded this episode outside in a COVID-friendly environment, so you may hear some birds and rainfall in the background of this one. Please enjoy. Molly and Jeremy, how are y'all doing today? Doing well, yeah. Thanks for having us. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having us. Awesome. Well, very excited to be interviewing you both today for the first two-for-one episode of Entangled. So with that, near Molly, why don't you give us a little bit of your background and then Jeremy, a little bit of your background, how we know each other, and then how the two of your stories came together. Sure. Yeah, like, I'm kind of a college dropout. So I, before, like, five years ago, I was starting to be a dentist. But then finally, I'm like, no way, this is not what I want to do. So I dropped it. And that moment when I figuring out what I want to do, I, mean, I was like a very confident, like I'm not scared that, you know, I'm out of college, future is gone. Like, because in India, it's very important that you have to be graduated. So, yeah, that moment I met Jeremy and yeah, a kind of a easy struggle rather than, you know, you were lost and it was easy to figure out like compose myself what I want to go ahead with so that's it and then in this last five years I've been find out that I want to love about anything food like history cuisine cooking and then I am a believer of like food is your medicine the way we fuel up our vehicle food is the vehicle to run the whole body so I'm into that matter like I've been studying a lot I studied about this Ayurvedic philosophy of what to eat, how to have a healthy life. And while going on that journey, I also ended up learning yoga. And that's another big field of yoga. So yeah, like this all yoga, eating good, trying to be mindful. Those things makes me my everyday running. So we went to a Wyoming school together. You were one year below me, and I can't remember the first time we met, but our older siblings were also mm-hmm. classmates. Ashley and Nicholas were in the same year. And after Wyoming, I went to college in Union College in Schenectady, New York. And in 2009, I signed up for a term abroad to India. 21 days traveling through India with an economics and anthropology professor. And 
one day, as we were traveling through India, we stopped in a place called Bagru, which is a city about 30 miles west of Jaipur, the capital of the state of Rajasthan in western India, borders to Pakistan. And in Bagru, they have a 400-year history of hand-block printing. So they carve wooden blocks and use inks and dyes to embellish fabric. And it's a craft that's been evident in India for thousands of years. But in this place, Bagru, it's really flourished in the last 400 years as Jaipur has grown and international trade has grown and now people that are in textiles and fashion know about this type of technique. Bagru is a very well-known town where this happens. So after visiting that place in, in this term abroad, and one day I had this idea, like I wanted to move there and work with the artisans to promote their craft. And my college has something called the Minerva Fellowship, which is a grant for graduates that want to move abroad and either work with an existing organization that's in uh, health or community development or an NGO, or there's the option to write your own program, choose your own adventure. And so after visiting Bagru that day, I wrote a proposal that I wanted to move there and collaborate with the artisans to create a new business model that would give them more power over their independent businesses because the way that their supply chain was set up was very busy with intermediaries and traders and wholesalers who each took a margin of the profit when it went from the maker all the way to the end consumer, whether it was someone out in Colorado that was shopping in a store for pillowcases. So anyways, I ended up getting this grant, and in 2010, after I graduated from college, I packed up a backpack and I moved to India. And what was supposed to be a 10-month program in India, then I had to come back to the college for 10 weeks of lecture, pretty much turned into 10 years. And actually, just about four months ago, Nirmali and I moved back to India, back to the U.S., (laughs) Yeah, so that one move, like, it turned into many different business ventures. And in between, I came back to the U.S. for my graduate MBA and then was doing some corporate sourcing for a while, then moved back to India. And overall, have been there eight years over the last, I guess, now 12 years Mm -hmm. coming in 22. That's such an interesting story for both of you, so I'm really excited for the conversation today. Jeremy, to start with, what was that cultural transition like coming from the suburbs of Cincinnati, traditional suburbia-type upbringing, to living in India for close to a decade? Well, I always feel really grateful and fortunate that I grew up with parents that really valued uh, international travel, and they were able to take my brothers and I on trips around the world. And so I was exposed to those type of like foreign environments and cultures that I wasn't used to. Because, yeah, like you said, it's like a bubble in uh, suburbia, especially here in Ohio. So I kind of knew like what I was getting myself into, you could say. And it was actually my second trip to India. My first trip to India was in uh, 2000. And that was when I was like 12 years old. But when I moved to Bagru, there was a lot of transition. I mean, I literally had just a backpack when I got off the bus 
In Bagru. <laughs> on the highway. So like, so the way to get to Bagru, first, say you're in Cincinnati, you fly to like Chicago or New York and you get on a long haul flight to either London or to Middle East. And from there, then you get a direct flight to either Mumbai or Delhi, mm-hmm. which are like the big cities in India. Delhi's the capital and uh, Mumbai is like another big New metropolitan. Yeah, mm-hmm. kind of like New York City, you could say. So I actually had flown into Mumbai and immediately got very sick. And I was in the hotel room for like a week, just like trying to get over a bad case of food poisoning. (laughs) And finally, I was planning to like take a train from Mumbai to Jaipur, but I wanted to get there because I had, because of the sick time, I like didn't have as much time as I thought before to arrive in Bagru. So I ended up flying to Delhi. Then from Delhi, it was a five-hour bus to Jaipur. Then from Jaipur, it was another hour bus out to Bagru. And that's on the middle of the highway in rural Rajasthan. Mm -hmm. So, you know, going down the highway, you see camels, you see elephants, you see ox carts, Mm -hmm. you see... Babas, religious people, sadhus with turbans dressed in orange and white and red on religious pilgrimages. And so then Bagru is kind of actually a medium-sized town in India. There's about 30,000 people that live there or lived there when I first got there. And I walked with my backpack about a mile to where I was supposed to meet my host father, you could say. And he picked me up there, and then we drove another 10, 15 minutes on his motorcycle through a dirt road, getting more rural. And then we came to a place called Chipaka Mohla, which is like the printer community. So Chipa is actually the surname of the group of artisans. So Chapai in Hindi means to print. And so these people have that surname Chipa. And so it's a very, if you could say, simple lifestyle compared to an American lifestyle. There's one thing I think I've noticed since I've got back is that like Americans love collecting things. (laughs) Yeah, we do not have and uh, there is like basic, mostly just the basic. Some people will not even have a bed. They sleep in a floor. Mm-hmm. It's so different. Yeah. So the, when I first got there, we pumped our own water in the morning from a pipe that hadn't been there that long. There was also a well just outside the house I was staying in for the local, you could say that they call it gully, which is like a road, a path, kind of like mm-hmm. a path with a few houses on it. And there's in, in the middle of that path, there was a water pump. And so the toilets are in the ground. There's squat, squat toilet, we yeah. call it. And no air conditioning or... Yeah, there's no air conditioning. And in Rajasthan, it gets to be quite hot. Almost 120 degrees in the summer. Wow. And it's a dry heat, not like uh, here with humidity. So it's like you don't actually get so sweaty as compared to with like a high humidity. Uh, it does but make you sick. Yeah. Dehydrated. Like, mm-hmm. So initially I basically shadowed my host family. And so I tried to just observe and, and figure out what life was like there and would get up in the morning around sunrise with a knock on my door and there would be chai, masala chai, and then shower and then go to temple. And my host father was very devoted to... I mean, everyone in India. Yeah. Well, in, in that area, yeah, the devotion and faith is very strong. 
then after that, after like going to the temple, we would come back, maybe have a snack and then get straight into printing. So basically they have these 10 yard long tables, seven to 10 yards long and about a yard and a half wide. Mm-hmm. And they lay the fabric on the top of the table, flat, removing all of the wrinkles. And there's a small cart with wheels on the bottom, about 18 inch by 18 inch, or maybe 20, two feet by one foot, approximately, which is the same size as a tray, a printing tray. And so inside that tray on the top of the cart are layers of fabric that act as an ink pad. And they hold the blocks in their hand, so it's like cross-sections of wood, and on one carved to like a design, and then on the back of it there's a handle, a wooden handle. So they hold the handle and they tap the block on the tray to get the color on the surface of the block, and then place it onto the fabric, which is resting on the table, align it with their steady hand, place it, and then beat it with a closed fist on top to imprint the color onto the fabric, and then repeat it over and over until you've printed an entire piece of cloth. And that's the way that fabric printing has been done since the invention of block printing thousands of years ago. The only difference is nowadays they're producing 10 to 15 times as much as they would of 150 years ago, and 100 times more than they would have produced like 1,000 years ago. Because if you look at like the origins, it was a very like luxury to have this cloth and it was very valued very highly for different ceremonies or for different people. Different people in the community would wear certain cloth with specific embellishments or at certain festivals they would throw, have oh, yeah, uh, blankets. Jajam. It's uh, called judjum there. Yeah where the community would come together and discuss important topics mm-hmm. or I mean, have spe- celebrations. Yeah. I felt like you have to go to India and to see. I never felt like the worth of cloth until I arrived in Bagru. For me, it was just like a cloth. But the day I arrived and I met over the time, the sense like, oh my God, just to make my one shirt, there is a 10 people who goes behind the whole process. And I, you will be more mindful. You will be respect your cloth. Maybe it's not matter to some people, but I think, yeah, like we have to be very mindful consumer. Yeah, it just open up the whole thing for that, me as uh, a consumer or as a human. Yeah. The Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z, millennials, whatever you want to call like the different yeah, younger they, they, they generations like, you have know, been influenced a lot by uh, mm-hmm. like uh, fast fashion like yeah. uh, H&M and Zara like this fashion and <laughs> Uniqlo and these different the brands that are made. having uh, like a, a low-cost product <laughs> yeah. and something seen as trendy or like fashionable or cool mm-hmm. yeah. How was? and that's really changed the way that humans have consumed textiles and clothing mm-hmm. over yeah. the last century Because if you think older than that, clothing was a very high value and it would be mended and fixed if there was ever any issues. You would, our parents' generation, you know, I'm in my 30s now, so my parents' generation, their, or or grandparents' generation, they would have a piece of clothing for 20 years Mm -hmm. and they wouldn't get rid of it until the sleeve completely started to fall apart or something. They do fix holes. Otherwise, (laughs) everything is fixed. So like now... Like Nirmali was saying about how the value of this craft, 
that was exactly what we've been trying to promote over the last 10 years is the value of the handmade craft and artisanry. That's really well put, and it gets back to near Molly what you were kind of mentioning earlier about coming to America as, as I know it's your first time and just seeing how much stuff we collect and this emphasis on materiality, right? We're recording this a few days after Christmas when just, you know, my, my niece got, I think, eight different Pokemon stuffed animals for Christmas, right? And it's like, all right, I mean, I love her and I love her to death, but it's like, does she need that many in one sitting? Like, are you really actually appreciating it? And to your point with clothing, we've very much taken that same mentality and there's just so much waste and people don't really respect the materials and the work that comes into it. So I'm curious, Nirmali, have you seen, maybe just just take a step back first, could you talk a little bit about where you grew up, what drove your eventual move to Jaipur, and we can go from there. Yeah, (laughs) it's a quite a story. I grew up in a, like my dad is a doctor, so he's like a rural area doctor and he loves his job. So we used to, I'm the first child and I have a sister like we are we share the same birthday 6th of November but she's like three years apart younger to me so growing up it's like and now I'm almost 30 and like I'm very conscious human I do observe things I felt like different than normal human so it was like my parents were like this is sweethearts they never you know give a lot of things maybe because it's the Indian culture maybe so in birthday it's a two-person birthday. Me and I, like my sister, share the same day. But they will bring one cake. They do not bring two cake. <laughs> but the people who got invited to the birthday, they were teasing us. Like, oh yeah, they're trying to give only one cake. They don't like you. It's a birthday. You know, all this bull- bad thing. But my parents was like, clear. You have to share it. This is your, this is one cake. That's it. No question. Because it's a fact, right? How, you're, how you grow up. Because you learn everything. Because there's so many research out there. We develop the whole subconscious while we grow up. And the whole life depends on that. You act that way. But anyway. What was the city that you, your birth city? It's Nogao. Like Assam, I think most people know for Assam tea. Like it's a kind of a big deal in a tea industry. It's like, it's just below Bhutan and Burma. It's beautiful. Like... Growing up was amazing. Though, like, as an Indian parent, they always push you to go study. You have to be a doctor. You have to be an engineer. Nothing else left in your life other than these two. But I was, like, a child, so independent. Like, I remember now I thought I was always conscious. Three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old. I do remember like, what I was doing. I was, like, a very taking care of my sister because my mom, they'd always be out and about. So we are left at home. Somebody will come do the household work and we'll be left in the house. And I was like very independent, taking care of and we used to play and go to school and all this childhood thing. But I come back home and I was not interested in a school's educational curriculum or activity or homework. I was into study literature, reading the newspaper and like magazines, what's going on. And by the time I'm in middle school... I was curious, you know, I want to see outside the world. I want to get out of here. Very ambitious. Like, I don't want to be where I am. I want to see the world. Because by the time I had an idea that the world is so big, there's countries, there's, you know, all this thing. I was very attracted by geography and history. So then I end up high school. And then it was like, you know, I was, I have to grow up. 
I was growing up with Indian culture, like options only that two thing. Either you, you want to be a pressure from your parents. Yeah, you want to be a doctor, you want to be an engineer. That's it. Nothing else left in your life. You are gone <laughs> if you don't go that way. At the end of the day, you have to yeah. obey your parents. Just two choices. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't know now the twenties kid what they feel, but when I was grew up in nineties or beginning of two thousand, there was that. <laughs> so somehow I don't know how I ended up in Jaipur. There was a moment like you know I thought I want to go outside of India to study, but my mom, no no no, you should just be inside India. But yeah, and again like. Oh, I was very independent. Like though there was a parents' pressure, but they do ask what I want to do. They do listen, but at the same time, no, you had to be a doctor. <laughs> so I ended up in Jaipur, and I was very sad when I, I was maybe eighteen or nineteen, some age. And you know, Jaipur, Assam is like you know, green water, river, mountain. It's amazing. The biggest city in Assam is Guwahati. Guwahati and the there's how many people there? I don't know. Maybe a million. Yeah. And in Jaipur is yeah, a Jaipur, few million. Yeah, it's like but but the geographical such a green area and here oh, like yes, desert. Desert, yeah. No trees, sand dunes. And I'm like, huh, how I ended up here. But though again, like I'm just a nineteen year old girl, very ambitious. Okay, I'm gonna study all these dreams but at the same time like i was again another independence was out there you don't have to tell your parents where you are going because you were so away and you were late a beginning of 20s you were so independent you felt like you were the best you can do anything what you want so i used to get all the whatever my parents gave me money i used to save it save it and whenever i have break i just go to himalaya like rishikesh uttarakhand himachal Everywhere where I can go within a six hour, five hour distance. Again, as a girl in India, it's kind of a people say, no, oh, uh, girls, you have to be very careful. Boys are not good out there and this and that. But I never had any bad experience personally. I would be like in the middle of night in a bus somewhere in the mountain. Maybe I'm the only one. And like going, it's crazy, <laughs> all this. And I was very happy and never felt like falling in love or... I have to get married, you know, all this girl's dream. It was most about just go out, see what's going on. So three years gone in my college like that. <laughs> Though I had boyfriend, but not serious, serious. But I was mostly exploring. So three years gone, final year, it's a lot of study in a dental school. And I was like, no way. It's not going to serve me in future. I don't want to be sitting, taking care of somebody's teeth but again always in my head I want to help people <laughs> but then I thought or oh, being doctor maybe you can or dentist can help people maybe because that's a notion because you're trying to stay into the work yeah uh -huh. so but that you didn't feel bad about the work you were doing <laughs> like you wanted to try to maybe make it work yeah but again my heart and mind was uh -huh. telling me no girl this is not for you you have to get out and by this three year of exploring, I exposed myself to lots of things. Oh my God, I explored the way to be a diplomat. Because <laughs> I want to go out, I want to see the world. I see the other options, what can you study? But then in the final year, I have to go to exam to finish the college or 
I have to get out of it and figure out my future life. That was there. And I chose to go to dump it in. I will see what happened. And so a couple follow-up questions to that. What did you decide to do after you decided to drop out of school? I, so it wasn't easy. Jeremy knows it. I met him at that point. I met him very interested way. I had just moved back to India. It was 2016, around April. Actually, no, it was May 10th, 2016. And I know that because it was my birthday, the first day that we met. And so I was like about six months into starting a new business called Studio Bagru. And I had just previously been living in Colombo, Sri Lanka, doing uh, supply chain management for some large North American retailers like Express and Victoria's Secret. And after doing that for about a year, I decided I wanted to move back to Jaipur to continue promoting this craft of hand block printing. And my college actually had kept sending graduates to work on the business. So by that time, it was the sixth generation grant recipient. His name was Davis Cutter, and he was living in Bagril. And so we decided to expand on that original vision of promoting the craft and like start an entity that would do this around the world. And so that's actually like uh, six months after starting the business, I met Nirmali and we began seeing each other and she became very active in Studio Bagru and working on the different parts of our I mean, uh, when, operations. Yeah. So we started doing these like experiential workshops in Bagru. Because Jaipur has a few million tourist visitors a year. It's, in India, there's the golden triangle of tourism, which is Delhi, Agra, Jaipur. Delhi, you go to see like the Red Fort. And mm, Agra, you see the Taj Mahal. And in Jaipur, there's like a big city palace. The royal people's vision of like a royal India. There's still a king of Jaipur. Mm. He's, I think, 21 wow. Goes to NYU. No, no, he gone. He oh, plays he polo now. <laughs> and so we developed these workshops for the visitors and started working with different tour companies and bringing people to Bogru. Because a lot of the, the easiest way to change people's habits about fashion and textiles is to educate them about the actual hands that are there behind all of the products. Mm -hmm. And so we would bring people to Bogru, show them about the printing, let them print it themselves. And Nirmali took like a very lead role in, in these workshops. And then about okay. two years later, 2018, 19, she realized that her your passion was cooking and food. It was 2019 or? I, guess. I think it was the beginning of 2019. I mentioned earlier that I love all things food, history, cuisine. So I always felt like that Indian food represented in a wrong way. It's like, what is curry? We don't have any curry. But if you go to every place, you say, look, uh, you find every same orange color gravy and everything you put dump into it and this is your Indian food. So I felt like as Jaipur get lots of people from all over the world, it's a very good way to let them see what is Indian food because every household and every area or say suburb, if we just, as we're sitting in America, have different food and it's so beautiful and it, it's so tasty. Uh, I thought that was a way to you know, introduce and 
maybe if it's impact only 10 people that's a lot like they know what is indian food is that's where we started but so then, we set up a kitchen studio with a couple gas burners and like uh, <laughs> all of the spices on the wall and little yeah. containers and oh, uh, Nirmali came up with like a Spice 101 introduction teaching the guests about the main spices in certain Indian cuisine. Like she said, like everywhere you go, there's different cuisine. If you go 100 miles in any direction, they'll have their own very yeah. diversified yeah. menu different. of things. And then when you go like from state to state, it's like each state is almost like a different country. People, Europe. It's like Europe, yeah, mm. you could say. But mm. still like very, there's people talk it's, about like the heartbeat of India. There's some different like vibration there yeah. that kind of connects everything. Mm-hmm. So we start, we, we made those cooking classes mm-hmm. and yeah. Then COVID hits. And then COVID. <laughs> Well, I definitely want to come back to, you know, what transpired after COVID hit. But before we do that, I wanted to go back to something you're talking about earlier in your story near Mali about how your parents and, and many Indian parents are focused on getting a practical job, like being a doctor or lawyer, engineer. It's also professional. And then how do you think about that aspect of Indian culture with, and please correct me if this is just coming from an Americanized view of Indian culture, but... My interpretation is that there still remains a very rich historical spiritual tradition in India. I know for myself, the Vedic tradition and history has been really important in my own spiritual journey. And so I'm curious how you think about that spiritual history with the maybe newer phenomenon of you need to do something practical, you need to be a lawyer, you need to be a doctor, and you know how you've seen those different elements throughout Indian society. I mean, I see at the end, when you are very serious, ill patients, doctor will tell, it's just on the hands of God. Let's just pray that he's alive. Let's just pray that it works out before big operations. So I think, yeah, it runs through the whole Indian culture. Have faith in God. And growing up, my mom, a big believer of God, God, God. She will go to God. She believes that that's the ultimate answer. If you have worries, go to God. And I think they do also feel like answers. It shows in there. But personally, I have a uh, trouble on the whole structure of God belief. I believe energy, faith, or all these things. But for me, it's hard to that, okay, let's go to this, this uh, what is it called? Shiva, and then Krishna, and then like this Lakshmi for me it's hard to identify them they all are equal and you just pray because in Indian culture this is the Monday is the Shiva day you have to offer milk and take a seven days seven Monday or twelve Monday something right like if you want to have a good relation or if you want to achieve something in certain traditions it's all over pretty much in, in North India so it's a huge deal. Like before exam, kids will go to the God and like, oh God, please pass me. Like I will do this for you if you do that to me. Like that barter system, they do happen inside. But again, what do you talk about? See this beautiful Vedic culture and this whole beautiful Hinduism. I'm no one to talk, but what my understanding is that cultures is still away a millions kilometer away from real culture because they modern culture modern culture there for them it's like monday tuesday thursday god for them still i don't know about the scholars study because there is lots of 
university where you go and study the spirituality, Vedic culture in Banaras Hindu University or wherever. But in real life, say, they will be like, okay, your sun, moon, planet, something happening. The astrologer will come and they will say, you, if you offer one portion of food to five people, that will be balanced out. People do believe and do that. But I do saw many people like who studied Bed, who studied Upanishads. It's beautiful. But it's very rare that maybe a very few Indians have a knowledge of that beautiful literature, script, or mythology, or whatever you want to say. But again, in the normal uh, society, they're far away from that. There's a big gap, mm-hmm. yeah. And then, Jeremy, on your end, I would love to hear about what was your religious upbringing like and how did your spiritual journey develop as you moved to India? Yeah, it's been really interesting as I've spent more time in India and learned new things every day about the ancient history and the Vedic knowledge and different traditions everywhere you go in India and the very rich cultures. So I grew up in a... Mostly, we went to temple, a Jewish temple, and it wasn't a very rigid religious upbringing, and we didn't really talk in detail at home about God or belief so much. We were left to our own interpretation, at least growing up. We were too busy doing dancing and, and piano and traveling. <laughs> <laughs> and so... It wasn't really until, I guess, I moved to India that part of my life started to develop. Growing up, I always had questions about the deeper meanings of life, or was there a God? Who is God? What does God do? Where do do we all come from? What's the purpose of being here? All these big life questions, but there was no answer I had seen that satisfied my my questions about the universe. What's the meaning of it all? Until I guess I got to India and I really, it wasn't, even if I didn't ask those questions, there was some new energy or feeling or part of my lifestyle that felt more connected to the earth and to the other people in the community and the people I interacted with. And as I, I guess my first kind of spiritual experience in India, there's a festival called Guru Purnima, which is like the day you celebrate for uh, Guru. Guru is, uh, can be interpreted as a lot of different things, but mostly it's like a teacher or like a, a guide. A guide. Yeah. Some people say it's the people, person that brings you from darkness to lightness. And so... And, and do you think that it has to be kind of one Guru? Is that the tradition in India? Some people, yeah. Uh-huh. They say that they do Guru Mantra. They will they will tell you something very, only you and a Guru, like on your ear. There's different yeah. traditions of having a Guru and different interpretations. Mm-hmm. If you look into like take, taking someone as a Guru in, in like the ancient concept, they have, I think, The this Guru Sishra, yeah. Like they will have a bunch of kids coming to Gurukul, like a school Gurukul, if you modern interpretation. And then Guru will observe everyone. And then he will pick only one. And you know, you are my. And then he will do Guru Mantra. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, there's a lot of different ways of Gurus. And, but in Bhagru, they had, his name is Shamdazi Maharaj. Maharaj is like a very big. Das? Maha, tell about the das. Maha means big and then Raj is. Big guy. Big, 
guy, like yeah. important person. And he would he lived at one specific temple and had been there basically a very long time. And he was revered as very honest and, and truthful and I mean, we kind of grew up in a modern time, so it would be a little hard to tell the whole definition of guru, maybe, because uh, I do not have any guru. Like, I'm a person who believes that you can be your own guru. Like, you do have that superpower, mm-hmm. though we don't use them. <laughs> but in India, I think what we saw that every temple will have a, a guy. The whole community will believe him as a wise man. Hindu, every Hindu, Hindu temple. Hindu temple, yeah. So he not will every be, temple, though, has a guru. Hindu temple, yeah, pretty much. Birla Mandir has a guru? No, Birla Mandir is just a tourist attraction. That's not a mandir. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, now you go into that ashram, right? Like Neem Karoli Baba, like you Mm -hmm. will see. So it's about, I think the whole guru is that what my belief or what I see, that he is a wise man who started maybe Bates, Upanishads, Sastra. Like these are big books. Not necessarily Bhagavad Gita or all this Mahabharata, Ramayana, these are all the Vedic texts or big books. So, so you know, in early age, they will pick up some boys, not girls, only boys, and they will put in a certain training. So, in potentially, he will be a next guru. So, in that duration of training to be a guru, these are modern word, but this is what it is. So, in the whole training, like say, um, it's a 16-year-old kid, in some village and then he will be picked up and then he will send it to a training in a guru called kushti like a martial art he have to go through that practice he have to study sanskrit uh, many ancient books are written on that language or dialect like alphabet sanskrit so he have to read that and upanishads bed how to do chanting the buddhism also do chanting the hindu has also notes of chanting so there, I think they have a school system. They have to pass some exams of something of Gurukul. So and then he will be a 20-year-old kid or 25, 23. So he will be never married. Like Guru pretty much never get married. He is withdrawal from this whole materialistic life. When you read like a Gita, it kind of become a monk. Like this whole, you know, Maya, this whole Christmas delusions. Oh, I, I need a... Like there are the people in sadhu or guru or any wise man in Himalaya. It will be snowing and he will not wear any layers. He will be sitting in asana like kriya yoga. Like where you balance everything and you don't fail anything. That's the ultimate things. And when people say that people do sadhana, we know a few here and there people who are into sadhana. They will be away from all the materialistic life, all the things. They will eat Annahara, like Patyahara, they say, only eat what you need, not, oh, let's grab a coffee, oh, let's grab a drink. No, <laughs> they will, they will woke up at the, before sunrise, what's this called, that Subha moment? Around 4.30 in the morning. Yeah, like, they have to woke up there, and mm-hmm. then they it's clean like, up like, their two system. two hours before sunrise? Yeah, cleaning up their system. There's lots of Kriya, yo- in yoga, like you study. There's yoga. one part of, so, yeah, I think one of the biggest changes I realized when I moved there is this whole concept of God. Mostly in U.S. we have a Christian and Jewish and of course there's other religions but I think those are kind of the two dominant religions here and there's that's like a one God system. When I first moved to India I thought it was oh they have millions and millions of gods which they do 
but these gods are kind of personifications of good aspects and bad aspects mm-hmm. of humans. And mm-hmm. but if you talk about like Vedic knowledge, ancient traditional Indian knowledge, there's mostly dualism and non-dualism. Oh, yeah. So like dualism means that you believe that there's a, a personal soul, like an individual soul called the Atman. And then the universal soul or the universal energy, like creator energy, which is the Brahman. And so after our consciousness, our Atman then either joins back with the Brahman or we are reincarnated and we have another life. Mm -hmm. And that process keeps going and going and going. The other school of Vedic thought is non-dualism, which is believing that it's all the same. Mm -hmm. The Atman and the Brahman are all one. So that's like Ramana Maharishi. So he's like a very famous modern time uh, non-dualist yeah, holy so person. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he, his, all of his philosophies, like if, they, if your listeners want to read, they just have to uh, search for Ramana Maharishi. He's an interesting writer. But I guess over the years of living in India, nothing still really fit all of the questions that I was having about what's the process and the method for... Living the best life with uh, certain traditions or certain mindset. How do you become like a very good human? Until, I guess you could say this COVID happened. Uh And Nirmali suggested that we go to a place called Mysore in Karnataka, which has famous yoga programs, Ashtanga Yoga which uh, Ashtanga Yoga actually is the yoga that the sage Patanjali talks about in the Yoga Sutras, which Ashta is eight and uh, Anga is limbs. So in this philosophy of of yoga, which was written anywhere from like 500 BC to like Mm -hmm. 500 AD, there's like not a for sure when exactly it was written. It could have been a little older. But that system, like it was the first thing that really made sense when I asked all these questions about why we're here and how do you live like the best life and what causes all of these afflictions that man has and those sorts of things. Yeah, like as it's going to reach to many audience, one thing we should mention about this whole concept of yogi and bogi. India believes that yoga is a way of life. Yoga is not that how many pauses, how many headstand, how many whatever you (laughs) can be. Downward facing dog. Yeah, upward and downward. So like the whole TTC, I see all over the world in Central America, you also can go and take study. Yeah. Before I get into this yoga, yoga thing study, even in the classes we met people, their goal is to be do headstand. I want to do within a month the headstand. But again, yoga is so beautiful. I think it's very important you're first yoga teacher is very important how you getting exposed to yoga yoga it's not that you have to weight loss you have to sweat like that hot yoga thing and it's not that how many how does how many pauses you can do your your first teacher should be very important because the whole philosophy goes behind yoga it's going to just blown away your life you will be start coming down to earth ultimately yeah it's beautiful That is beautiful. And it'd be helpful, I think, for a lot of the American listeners who view yoga as just the physical aspect of it, right? The classes that we're used to. You mentioned the hot yoga. But my understanding is yoga, the physical aspect is actually a relatively small piece of overall yoga philosophy. And could you talk about the whole body of what yoga really means? 
So yoga comes from the Sanskrit word yuj, which has been interpreted as meaning union. And so the union actual meaning has then been farther interpreted to being like a union between the mind, body, and soul, or spirit. And so if you really look back into the texts on yoga, there's ancient texts on yoga in like the Vedas, and then more modern texts. So this Yoga Sutras that I was mentioning, that's eight limbs. So the first uh, and second limb are Yama and Niyama, which is the self-disciplines and social disciplines. The self-disciplines like cleanliness and non-theft and different parts of everyday life and the way you interact with people. And then there's after Yama and Niyama, like after you've purified your life and your relationship with the community, your personal existence, and then your relationship with those around you. Then you start with asana. Asana means postures. Then after asana is pranayama. So pranayama, prana is like life force. And so like controlling your inhalations and exhalations, things like that. Then there's pratyahara, which is withdrawal of the senses and emotions. Mm -hmm. So this is, this is like, as you so as you take it deeper and deeper, so it starts with yourself and then your community and then your body, then your breath. Then there's dharna, which is one-pointedness or concentration. And that's when you start to like get into more meditation and like a deeper thoughts about just one. And then dhyana. And finally, the eighth limb is something called samadhi, which is equanimous mind. So it's like being one with the universe. So you can see like even before you get to the postures and the breath work, first you have to be living like life in a, a way that prevents you from any of the mind afflictions. But again, why, why I take this? Uh, then again, I studied Ayurveda. We went to Kerala this year in July and we, I, we studied about the whole uh, philosophy of Ayurveda. They believe that we have a body type and it's like vata, pita, kapha. And when these three things are in balance, you will never get sickness. And to get that, you need yoga. Like you do not need astanga yoga. Like you do not need headstand or this pose, that pose. Just basic Surya Namaskar. And then eating right food. What is in season and cooked warm. Not just grab a hamburger or something out of a frozen section and put it in a microwave and eat it. And that's where you get all the disease here. But people, you know, oh, we're so busy, we don't have time. But guess what? If you cook a little thing, it takes maybe 20 minutes, the whole meal. And in 30 minutes, you are done with your eating habits. But anyway, when you study Ayurveda and yoga together, it just changes your whole perspective of things. It's hard maybe sometimes to tell what's inside of our brains and what we're exposing outside of our mouth and what is going to inside the listener. But I feel like, see, the curiosity, the more curious you are, and then it leads you to the questions. When you arise questions, you want to look for answers. And I think, yeah, we are curious, and I believe that everyone should go and invest. It's a beautiful gift you can give yourself in this lifetime. Go to a good teacher, learn a good yoga, and yeah, learn a little how to cook a little food, a healthy food.
That's great. And I definitely want to dive further into Ayurveda and how you all got interested in that as well. But before we do that, definitely wanted to dive a little further into the guru conversation. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and specifically, I think that some people in the West in particular have maybe a negative connotation when it comes to the word guru, right? Like Tony Robbins has been really influential for me and my journey and his documentary was called I Am Not Your Guru. But I think part of that, at least in the West, comes from this legacy of the Abrahamic religions, Christianity, Judaism, typically have forced an intermediary between you and that direct experience of God. And then in recent years, as more things about the Catholic Church have come out and the things that these priests were doing to children, that people have really, in the West, again in particular, have lost trust in these people who historically took that guru-type figure. And so there's always this concern of, are you a false guru? Are you a false prophet that's taking advantage of people and their desire for spiritual enlightenment? And so I'm curious if there are similar concerns of these nefarious characters in India as well. I mean, I'm a very young age lady, but I felt like it's everybody wants to be a millionaire. And selling a guru image is an easy way to be making some money and get popular. Who doesn't want to be the rich and popular and well-known person, right? But that's the same way the corporations, the government, everybody, not leading you to any good directions. And we also human like a foolish people, like we sold out by any idea. And we're like, oh, wow, let's just get it. Rather than we really question ourselves, do I really feel in connections? Is it the one that I want to hear? Because in the Googles, there's millions of informations, but that not necessary that Google is always correct. It's you, like, how do you want to take it? Because we're living in a generation, so time, everything right, everything wrong. So it's hard. It's hard. I would say I'm in a stage right now in life. I believe that you are your guru. You should be your own guru. If we see this Tony Robin, what he tell us, affirmations that get out of her superpower. Right. I do believe it. If I dream and if I fix my mind that this is what I want to do in life and you get there. And if it's if you not get there, you do learn in that whole process. And like that's spirituality, I think. That's what you're you are your guru. I think a lot of Westerners also they have this romantic view of India, India. and mm-hmm. they want to like that movie Eat Pray Love. Oh, I, I think it. was <laughs> that was like very influential on a certain group of <laughs> people and I think in Jaipur we saw a lot of travelers that encompass encompass that mindset going to India opening up about spirituality finding oh finding God. a guru I mean see the conversation leads you to many things yeah uh, so we also went to Himalaya like Buddhism so there's a school called Deer Park Institute so we attend the workshop how to balance your chakra yeah like it was very beautiful the lady was telling us to do many activities seven chakra the seven chakra everybody talks about though there were lots of chakra they find out in recent history so it was beautiful and i do feel like see like many people like we are afraid to talk in the afraid that how you might the person going to take me oh i have to be because the society wants you to pretend the norms right and wrong right so in America, you were very open mind, like you do speak up. But in India, you are, you are not allowed. If you are, you, you are a girl, even I think in society, right, girls should behave like this. Girls shouldn't be like that. And 
oh we are in a social gathering you have to behave like this way you are not behave like that way so i think we are be suppressed to express ourselves and that's where that your chakra is out of balance so there's seven chakras in your body yeah. up and down the spine like those are the major chakras one at the top of your head one at your third eye one in your throat your heart yeah. your belly button your genitals and just down at the root of your sacral. sacral and each one is associated with different behaviors and and different attitudes in your life both mentally and physically and they're also represented by different colors of the spectrum so like a red orange yellow green blue indigo violet from bottom to top and in this workshop basically it's called the chakra balancing Mm-hmm. First you drew a picture of your body. So you lay down on a, on the ground and then you like use a pen to trace around your body and then using colored pencils and markers and everything the first thing you do is kind of draw what you think of your body and anything. anything. Some people said that there was a big pain in certain areas or like there would be more color in the throat or the heart or Some people had things coming out of their head or all around their body. One person had like feet that were shaped like, like a, a duck. duck. <laughs> she, she loves ducks and she like thought she was like a duck. <laughs> and so then based on these different things the teacher also has do these activities like jumping up and down or walking around the room pointing your fingers in one direction or shaking your hands. And these are things that are supposed to help balance these energy channels and like a lot of people have repressed emotions due to like traumatic events in their life or even physical ailments in their body that mm-hmm. prevent certain energy from moving around. So these sort of exercises yeah. help to release those things. Yeah. Because in a spirituality there's many people find out that when your chakras are closed you do get disease. It's very important. So there was lots of activity So that's also important thing that people should know how to express what to do how to be you know mindful again mindful it's easy to say but it's hard to figure out how to be mindful And as uh, listeners are hearing this I did just want to add a point that it's really good to read up about yoga or chakras or anything before trying to just do it on your oh, own yeah. or going and finding a guru or a teacher to teach you It's really important to do the due diligence of the background about those teachers or the studies before you just haphazardly start into a practice because these are things that have a very major impact on your body and your mind and your life so it's best to go into it with good knowledge either from plenty of research or or meeting something that's a reliable source or else just take a break get some little money cuz india is still cheap Just go to India. Yeah, you will figure out because you learn and you get questions. You will look for more answers and you will figure out. So now let's jump back into Ayurvedic medicine and how you all got interested in in Ayurveda in the first place. How do I get started? I mean, India still every there will be always advice from our grandparents or parents. Like if I say that. Oh, I feel like feverish. They will give you a perhaps oh, so? ginger tea or honey. and like this oh i have been gastritis or constipation they will always have some medicine at home <laughs> and in the form of spices or in the form of herbs bark they will always have something there's always and they will have no 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 it's getting i know windy you should warm it warm yourself up do not be outside this season is bad you should be inside there always all this thing and 
I was never motivated the whole connection of why is this but later in my life last five years I'm like whoa our, our body reacts yeah like our grandparents meetings. never have so much disease what we have right now right they're always woke up early go to whatever activities they do physical labor yeah pretty much yeah and then eat everything they cooked at home and eat and still alive for 70 80 90 my grandma is still alive she's still you know want to do something <laughs> want to be active so 2015 the when i was figure out that i don't want to be a dentist i want to do something else and food also one thing that i enjoy eating talking cooking anything then i start finding out in this world of internet this whole the greek philosophy of food and this ancient ayurveda and this chinese or tibetan there's all connections i'm sure when the all the land the whole continent when it was together they must have something back in the time and this whole this uh, allopathic rx the doctor right before prescription, prescription. yeah the all the greek thing you're talking about like the rx the, and then the Hi- hippocrates was his name the Hi- hippocratic oath that that guy told right like food will be your medicine and then this millions and millions of texts in chinese traditions they talk about food i read few books about tibetan medicines chinese yin yang and this whole ayurveda beda as we talk about beds this is four bed so ayurveda is also a part of bed so this is small like what is ayurveda if you ask me it's say the teacher says a way of life it's not that okay i got fever this is medicine i got cough this is the medicine it's not that they start trying to cure your internal thing because they believe when it's balanced no disease can get you i mean when we went to kerala like to study that we never talked about this whole covid when covid cough and cold symptoms it's go away indian don't get scared of cold when corona came they had so many home remedies and if you look at the population of that country uh, not even a one person got affected yeah and then later half they were oh my god there's no oxygen this that like we always know that there was no hospital per capita of population so yeah that thing we need to fix maybe in that country but if you look at the population it was a negligible i think was affected by corona immediately they had medicine at their home it ginger it this it clove like this that that so the whole ayurveda it's about what to eat how to eat when to eat this whole philosophy and so you you talked about a bit about covid and i'm curious about your views on allopathic medicine in general in this culture that we have in the west of vaccinating your children very young and then also as you get sick what i would deem is more sick care right where it's all about these prescription pills and people go back every day and how do you view that do you think it's something that could be used in tandem with ayurvedic or is it in many ways just strictly contradictory to ayurvedic i mean yeah this people do all this research and there's lots of people like i have no one to tell my comments but the whole covid time jeremy and i traveled the whole india we were in a himalaya we went to assam where i come from we are traveling india was closed 3 months for traveling around within the country and in june they opened up and in july we were in an airplane and we are 
everywhere. I stopped using sanitizer because I don't sold out by the idea that sanitizing will do anything. And yeah, we were out and about and we never got anything. We're using precautions. It was just a taking a distance from people. I like, think that the American culture, there is like actually the amount of distance that people keep is a lot closer than in other places. Mm. What I noticed in you're India... You're talking about like six feet for COVID yeah, kind of thing? Yes, yes. Okay. Previous to COVID, I think people were much closer when they interacted than necessarily in other parts of the world. Some, I mean, in Europe also, like they get close, they hug and kiss in some mm. places on the cheek. But in India, there's not no. that much mm. space. We don't express our affection. <laughs> no, there's other ways to. No, no, just right? eating food. Eat, eat. That's our affection. Yeah, you will see it uh. when you go there. <laughs> but we cannot express publicly our emotions, affections. Yeah, we also cry less. Men, mm. when boys, I mean, this in every culture, like boys are not allowed to cry, and girls are this and that. Yeah, all this Ayurvedic philosophy again, like drinking warm water, taking uh, ginger tea. City and all these things, yeah. I do feel it makes sense. It's interesting what you're talking about with the biology of belief and how belief is so important for health, and it resonates a lot with some of the things I've been learning recently about epigenetics and the work that folks like Dr. Bruce Lipton have done, if you're familiar at all, in the sense of we used to have in the West at least this kind of antiquated idea that your genes control your DNA, you're completely subject to them, and so your RNA reads. The DNA in your genes, your RNA then produces proteins based off what it's reading. But what we've learned more recently with epigenetics is that, in fact, there's a higher level that starts with the proteins, which start with the proteins that your brain signals to make, which then impacts which of the genes within your DNA are signaled. So it all starts epigenetically with the protein produced by your thoughts and by your brain. And are you producing stress hormones like cortisol? Are you producing more beneficial hormones? And so I'm just curious if that you think relates to the Ayurvedic tradition as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I, I've been reading a book about balance your hormone, balance your life, then hormone intelligence change. These two books. And it's mostly was focused in omen about this whole hormone thing. And it's mostly research based on omen. I do very talk to Jeremy what happened, the mood swing. You know, do you know about this? Girls get periods, they have the PMS, this mood swing. And then they, you are labeled like, oh yeah, your period is coming. That's why you're behaving in a way. <laughs> you know, all this thing. But I do believe, and there's lots of research that it is affecting. And right after this COVID vaccine, lots of women complaining about their period cycles messed up not coming coming and all this omen thing women are having issue i'm not sure about men like how they you guys <laughs> having any changes or you know anything but yes i do believe again the disease because this whole plastics bf bpf and certain components in the packaged goods does mimic our hormones, our estrogens and this and that. I mean, we are so dependent. And again, the pollutions, the exposure, the phones, the signals, the Bluetooth, the AirPod, they all does, you know, messed up with our system. But again, we are slave to this technology the same way we're again doing it. Yeah, I want to know how hormone affect the boys. Does it still change? I mean, definitely after a vaccine, I didn't notice anything. I mean, you know, definitely I feel like during puberty, I noticed changes in hormones, but... Mm -hmm. 
I can't necessarily say that I notice any kind of swing intra month. I don't know. I or mean, anything like that, Jeremy. Feel like yeah. mm-hmm. has a lot of changes. Oof. You know, you will start getting acne. Lots of women can relate. Before periods, you will get all this acne or sugar craving. Because we put our system in a way that, because we felt like, oh, it's a pleasure having ice cream. Because I felt like America needs a lot of ice cream. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of the the diet and the foods we consume have a radical effect on our well-being and our behavior yeah. and our relationships. And that's a huge difference here. Yeah, I mean, in India, we only, we used to. Now, it's a modern world. You eat all the pastry whenever you want or chocolate, bad chocolate. We used to eat sweets only in a festive time, like in Diwali, only sweet. Somebody popped out a child for the celebration, you will have sweets. Somebody got a job, sweets. Until like, say, 10 years before. Last five years, now we have modern pastry. Go out, get a pastry, ice cream. Yeah, we also start behaving like a Western world. You know, I think that's unfortunately partly due to the cultural influence of the West, right? Obviously through not just imperialism, but also entertainment subsequently. and, and, and all Overconsumption. Yeah. Overconsumption. Over. And it's interesting when you talk about food as well, right? And I think, again, in the West, we have this weird distinction between this is food and this is a medicine or a drug, when in reality, really, my view is the distinction between medicine and drug is all about dosage. Sugar, to your point, I think is probably the most dangerous quote-unquote drug that is in America, if you look at statistically the number of people who die, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, all that's to ask, how do you think in in Ayurvedic medicine, how do you think about the distinction between food and medicine and herbal remedies maybe also plant medicines like cannabis would love to get your thoughts there i mean my thought on cannabis it's a beautiful thing people should use it for good purpose not like addiction or bad way because there's a very thin line when you become a slave to a thing or you can control that thing on you right so that's the thing I see like now just you go to a store, CBD, 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 that, CBD, that. I was just very concerned about the research and the appropriate way, how much you are aware, how much you should consume and where to take and not take. But I'm a big, I'm a big, I do believe in all these things. It can cure your all this cancer, pain, relief, this, that. Yeah, I do believe. Yeah. And how do you think about just generally food versus medicine? I would say, and after five years of very intensely study the whole, you know, food philosophy on health, I would say if you really eat on season, on time, mindfully, it would be away a thousand kilometers away from disease. This all what's this called, like autoimmunable disease or all this diabetes, sugar, blood pressure. It's all done by us. We, we create ourselves because we are so busy in our life that we don't have time for anything to sit and eat. We are so busy like, okay, let's just grab something, you know. So what is sandwich you grab sometime in the morning with the coffee? You have to go to work. So bad, so bad. And, and uh, yeah, and, convenient. Yeah, yeah and the sad part is that the government and the rules and regulation, this food industry, how they get the license when they know this whole aisle of cereals, they know it's poison, but they're still okay to be out in the market. 
And again, like, you know, health food is so expensive. Why? Why health food is so expensive? Just because that we do not grow our things. We have to buy from third party, fourth party. It's another thing. Like, we've been, we kind of see the supply chain of the health food industry. There's lots of herbs and all. Herbs was cheap in India, but recent year ayurvedic medicines ingredient also became goes up because the demand is more in the market it has to go up but again i always ask myself why organic but i mean organic what is organic there's nothing organic the seeds are gm what is organic organic will become with the half rotten <laughs> right i mean see that you have to be healthy you have to eat organic but organic it's a very high class people food i believe because it's hard okay it, and then again if you are you go out in the market you want to buy organic it's so expensive like you cannot put your feet every month in the whole food it's so expensive yeah. for average american the food is very expensive in general so that's why they opt for can this can that in and then full of sugar that's and then when you it. have that type of diet it also makes you more susceptible to uh disease yeah covid yeah. and all that i mean yeah. yeah yeah and it's you know i think we could go on for hours about this oh, yeah. the food industry and whenever there's any type of regulation so that tries to prevent marketing of sweets to children there's this we're a nanny state you can't tell us what to sell to our kids they can have candy if they want but it's like yeah. you look at and i i've seen something crazy like the average american has to make something like 150 food choices a day just because we're constantly bombarded and you at Every checkout counter, there's candy, there's sweets, and it's always junk food. Yeah. And even at like any type of gas station that I go to, I always joke like you can't find anything in the store that's nutritional that has some actual yeah. content to it. It's all just yeah. fried sugars and High corn fructose. syrup. Oh my god, every ingredient, every. I saw in those salsa. What do you buy from Amish country? Have sodium benzoate, <laughs> and calcium chloride. Yeah. I mean, Delicious. <laughs> <laughs> like, see, in India growing up, we do not have so many options, even still, like very limited options. We do not have drinking culture of anything. There's maybe only a water bottle, some soda, Pepsi, Coke, Fanta, that's it. Thumbs up. Yeah, I think it's, we have to go back to our parents' generation. I, I believe that the world, the destructions of cultures, health, Everything started from the time when our parents are our age. In the conjunctions, I want to be a millionaire. I want to be popular. I want to make a company. I want to sell things. And that greediness put us here today. Like, we're confused in every perspective. When we want to go out, but there's, again, there was no constructive way or any leader or any path. It's, It's confused out there. So, Jeremy, when you were talking and going back to earlier in the conversation, when you were talking about uh, Guru Purima, how do you say it? Yes. Yeah, I don't, I don't think we actually uh, ended this story there, but would love to hear. We got, we got a bit sidetracked, so I'd just love to hear why that, why that specific day was so meaningful for you and, and how your spiritual path has progressed since then. Well, that day in Baguru was, I had just moved to India a few months earlier, and... I was still trying to just be uh, an observer of what was going on, and I didn't want to do any festivity without getting like permission or going someplace without being invited. So pretty much just like following whatever the family was doing. 
So that day they went to the temple, gave like a offering to Shamdazi and like a blessing for well wishes. So like people wait for, it's one of the most busy days at the temple and everybody brings some sort of offering, ties a bracelet around his hey, wrist. That's when I really feel like something changed in my understanding about that like devotion and belief and surrender to something greater, something that you can't express. Not that he, that person himself, but he was like interpretation, like a connection between those two worlds of like spirituality and earthliness, somewhere in between. And so acknowledging that something was there that I couldn't explain that is greater than my understanding. We talked about the Atman, the individual soul, and then the Brahman, the collective soul of all of our consciousness and energy in the universe, and the relationship there, and understanding about those relationships. Later that year, I was on a bus to Delhi, oh. and I met someone from a place called Manali, Vicky, and he told me about this festival called Dashera, which is, which is an event that happens. It's a Himachal Pradesh, so it's like they say that it's a Devabhumi, where all the god seats hang out there. <laughs> the gods, mostly Shiva. So again, it's very interesting. They call it a, a place of God, but when you go there, the gods are so different. I kind of believe that they they worship energy. On that Dashera, like you can maybe go because India is not far now in modern time. You can just go sometime to feel this, like what we are talking right now. It takes place in October. October as a big playground and then the deity or maybe God, you can say. There's some people will carry the God from the upper villages or wherever. They all will go together in one place and then... The God will tell one guy that I want to meet that God. And they will go to hang out on the other tent of that God. How many God came to South Germany? There's over, I think, 200 different communities from these uh, small mountain villages that yeah. have their, that bring their idols and the energies of the mountain yeah. and the gods yeah, and to then, this festival ground in mm-hmm. Manali. So it's like from Delhi, you have to take almost 13-hour bus up winding road, back and forth, hairpin, hairpin turns, <laughs> drop-offs that are a thousand feet into like a ravine, and buses zooming back and forth along yeah. this cliff edge. And so you arrive in this place and you look out and you see all the chiseled peaks of the, the start of the Himalayas where the mountains are actually getting snow on the top. And if you go farther, you go to a, pla- to a place called, what's the pass? Rotang Pass. Pass, which is the but now highest, they make tunnel. that was the highest pass in mm-hmm. uh, so, navigable pass. So it's called Rotang La, in like in Tibetan, in that uh, Lahuli dialects, it's the part who consume human, like you might die there, like Rotang La. It was danger, but now they made a tunnel. So, so you can right before five that place is uh, Manali. So that's a little bit past Kulu. Kulu is the place where they have the Desher. So mm-hmm. 
my, I was on this bus and he was like, oh, you have to come up here. Then like went to that festival, the first year that I moved to India. 2011 you went? To, second year I was there. Okay. And to see these living gods on these palanquins, four people yeah. hold two on in each front, side. Two at the back. And then there's the idol in the middle. Yeah. And there's faces made out of brass. And four or five big faces. Like or nine even. Mm. So then finally, this area actually is famous for this Hadimba Devi and mm. Gatotkach. So Hadimba was a... She was a lady and her She killed son. the guy, yeah, something like that. She was like a powerful lady. And there was this demon that... She killed the demon. She killed the demon in the Mahabharat. Mm -hmm. Was it Mahabharat? Yes, yes. And that there's like Hadimba Mandir there in Manali. And right nearby like You the, need to go. Because uh, you're in this Deodar forest. So the Deodars are like these massive pine, pine trees. trees. Uh -huh. Kind of like the ones out... I don't know what kind of pine big, are big in Colorado, but okay. they're, they're little... I think it's like... What was the giant trees in the out west? Uh, the sequoias? The big one? Mm -hmm. like, the like redwoods? Yeah. 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 Pretty this much is, like that. Okay. And so you like you go hiking there and it's like these massive trees. It's so beautiful. I think it's pretty much like we are talking about the explorations and what we see. And then in that Manali, there is a Thai guy. His name is Bamboo Baba. And he left Thailand. I think I don't know he has a passport anymore, but... He lives there in the Himalaya and yeah, he just, he prayed this uh, Shiva God, right? And yeah, he lives in a hut. I felt like he is the examples of real sadhu, baba or whatever you want to call, spiritual guy. Yeah. He's very mysterious. He, he sings Bob Dylan song. Bob Marley. Bob Marley songs and he smoke out of this Thai bamboo pipe. But he's chill. He, he will go there, you know, we... we we, ever since we know each other, we were out there every year for months. The first trip, I think we went together there. Yeah. And even last time we went... Ever since June. I went to that first Dashera festival, whenever I've been in India, I, I try to go there. Uh -huh. in, if I'm there in October, I'm going to the Dashera. Yeah. It, it's hard to explain. And if anybody asks, like, what do you find there? It's I believe that it's emptiness. And there was no expectations you don't have to answer to anyone and you were just oneness that's what i feel why i go there that's what i feel you could have said that it's a spirituality or it's a god or whatever like that's what i believe yeah the vibrations there i love it yeah it's beautiful there and do you think that comes from the place itself the community of spiritual followers all the above from generation and generations that the Devbhumi, Himachal, it's called where God sits. I think that's the, that's the place, the vibration and the community who believes in this energy, all this. Yeah, I think so. I think that the mountains, just the massiveness of the mountains and the oh history of these communities that have been there for thousands of years. and India, India itself feels spiritual, the whole country. Yeah. It's something. I mean, I never spent anywhere last all these years of my life, but I went to Hong Kong and I'm here directly. But I love India so much. India makes you feel something. Like something is there. It's missing here. It's something. I don't know. It's hard to say that something. That's something I think is spiritually. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I... 
Well, I don't know if it's spirituality or energy or if you want energy like, for sure. If you yeah. want to, you know, call it vibrations or just the way you feel. Let's, and mm-hmm. there's, there's a balance, there's a rhythm, there's something there. You you do feel like you know the whole circular connection. I felt that way. Like you will see the whole birth. Yeah, the life, whole circle. Death. Because uh, I felt that many times. Rebirth. Yeah. That like, cycle. No, no. The cycles of many times when you out of your balance, you do questions who you are, what's going on, like what I'm missing. But in India, you do feel like I mean I don't know about many Indians, but. I do feel that I do see the whole circle there. Like I, I feel very, the energy you can feel there. It's hard to explain. And you talked about the idea of the circle and rebirth, and I'm curious, what are each of your personal views on death and what comes next if there is an X? As I'm a human of modern era, I do scared of death. I mean, as it is, oh, I don't want to die. I want to be here, like the. Because people are trying to make this artificial intelligence where you also dead bodies are stored that believe that they're going to be get back to life. Like the Matrix. <laughs> yeah, whatever, yeah. Everybody wants to... Everybody afraid to be die. Who doesn't want to be have this beautiful thing of being alive and, you know, dominate the world? <laughs> but what about the circle thing, like the cycle? Uh, yeah, so... I do question myself, what's after that? Because I never met anyone, you know, because I'm a dead listener or believer. Like, I know... Oh my God, there's a story. <laughs> One of my grandma, my mother's aunt or someone, like she was died. She was in the cemetery, but she woke up and she came back home and she started telling that she met other people who died of the family. And then they told her that, oh, this is not your time. You should go back. I heard that story one time. I also had like a life, seeing the light incident. When I was 16, I was in a bad car accident in Namibia. I remember that. And I was ejected from the car like 50 feet. And I, the last thing I remember is hitting my head in the, the roof of the car and then like blacked out. And then I saw the white shining bright light in a tunnel going towards one direction. And then the calls of my brother, Zachary, Jeremy, Jeremy, coming from another direction. And I could have that moment either one way or another to go. And I vividly remember sitting up, opening my eyes, blinking my eyes, moving my arms. I was laying on the side of the road and look over to see my brother coming by some grace of the universe. Some might say not my time or other plans or whatever. I was coming out with not any major injuries couple cuts and bruises mm-hmm. here and there but I was able to actually my whole family was okay I was the only one not wearing I mean, my I seat mean, belt yeah. so I mean you made a choice that I don't want to go to the white light I want to get back yeah I mean life depends on all the choices we make yeah yeah so that I think that there is like this energy, there's the energy of existence that we know it, and then there's some other energy that maybe connects everybody. I don't know exactly what that means about the past or the future, the afterlife and the possible rebirth. In uh, physics, we have this law of matter that means that you can't create or destroy matter. So even in that sense, the energy is there. 
There are interesting emotions or things we experience in life, like instincts or intuition. These moments of clarity or attraction or repulsion towards certain people or things or likes and dislikes. I'm a person that always goes after what my heart says. I don't allow my brain to know, calculate my heart's doubts. If I fell, I will do it. If I don't fall, I don't do it. But that's also something, right? Intuition is the big power in life. Yeah, definitely. You know, I was talking to someone recently and they said that they never really felt like one big push from any sort of energy and they just kind of went with the flow. So like going with the flow also might be like a thing as well that the instinct or attraction, you know, the way that we describe these things just in our talking about These emotions can be misunderstood a lot of times, especially when you are talking with people with a different native language. It just, see, a criminal also not a bad person. He just made a wrong choice. That's why he did that crime. And now he fucked up in jail or whatever. And if that moment he didn't choose to kill, he would have the nice person on the other side. So it's all about making choices. You go by the flow, you go by the instincts, you go by the... I think everybody came to this life with the agenda, I think. It's all, it's all spiritual. I learn, I got affected by this, I got this. I... It's hard. This is life, I think. It's mystery. What do you think, Jordan? Yeah. My personal view is that there is this element of a soul that persists and manifests itself into mm-hmm. other forms right, that it probably did in past lives and will in future lives. And what exactly does that look like? Is it another human life? Is it even of this earth? Is it, is there like some element of like guy unconscious, right? And all that, like, how does my individual soul factor into that concept of Brahman? That's, I think, where I have the, the hardest time. Because I just certainly, I definitely believe that we are all entangled as part of one consciousness, that, that, that concept of Brahman definitely resonates with me as, as kind of the fundamental structure of everything and everyone. But where that dividing line between Atman and Brahman is exactly, that's where I still really struggle with. And, and maybe, you know, my just understanding of duality isn't, isn't even the right way to frame it. But that's where I'm at in my own personal views on, on the afterlife. Was there any moment that you had of clarity that made mm-hmm. you feel like, oh, this makes more sense yeah. now? Like. Yeah, I'd say, so my spiritual journey started when I was introduced to the unified field of consciousness theory and the implications of it, because it, for, for me, really was the first time that I learned of, a, of an idea that you know married my understanding of quantum physics with the ancient relig- spiritual tradition that made a lot of sense to me, and then the more I dove, in, dove into it, And I think I'd had some experiences on psychedelics where I was experiencing these higher states of consciousness, but didn't necessarily have the spiritual context to understand and interpret what was happening. And so anyway, after I first saw a documentary that explained this theory to me, I had a pretty significant acid trip where I was exploring consciousness and specifically what's called the holographic structure of the universe. And as part of that trip, just, you know, by pure accident had what I'd 
call a transcendental experience where I just felt completely connected to this Brahman or this unity consciousness that everything in the universe was love. That time was a construct, a man-made construct, but a false construct, right? That it was illusion. And so since that time, as I've continued to explore my consciousness, particularly in elevated states and on psychedelics, I've, I've had some more spiritual experiences. And, and another more recent experience, I really felt that like I was connected with my soul completely. And that one of the things that was showing me was that thinking about life experience in our current human biological life, like isn't the right way to think about it, that our whole goal as spiritual beings is to elevate to higher consciousness, to collectively improve ourselves as an individual and our society as a species. And so that's some ideas that I've been exploring recently. Oh my God, many people don't think about this. Like people are so busy. I have to get married by this. I have to have a children. I have to have a house. I have to do this. I have to do that. Yeah. Many people are away from this. They were like, oh, there's no God. Oh, there's nothing. Because they're too busy in material world. But they'll never have this. They will be maybe again taking all these acid drugs and that. They will be addicted and kill themselves by overdose. They will never enjoy this beauty, like emptiness. This nothing. What is this? Like what we are. Nothing we are. In this lifetime, like how many of us question this beautiful equations or chemistry, right? Everything makes sense. Science, mystery, reality, biology. Yeah, it's hard. I think we all should question. Yeah, asking questions and answers. But the answers also. Yeah. Sometimes people get the wrong answers. Yeah, you know, and they're misled. Or, yeah, that's what happened. Like times. through societal norms or marketing. I hate advertisement industry. Like I hate that. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's interesting because the more I think about it too, right, it, a lot of it is manipulation at the end of the day, right? It's just how can we get people to consume more and more and more. And one of the things I've also been thinking about lately is just the fundamental principles of capitalism, right? And it's, it's become in this country at least almost treason to question capitalism, right? And, and I'm not saying that we've necessarily historically found better alternatives. Certainly communism didn't prove to be so, but point is, when you think about capitalism, right, you measure a company's success by profit, right, by shareholders' profit. And profit, by definition, is how can you as a producer take raw materials and extract as much, you know, and, and the, the pro-capitalism stance would say you're adding a, a bunch of value to the end customer. But by definition, profit is the difference between what the end customer pays and what you paid for it. So you're almost intrinsically harming the end customer by creating profit. And anyway, that's part of what, what really that's excites me. With it. it is. And so I'm curious as you think about capitalism and how you've seen that impact. And you as a capitalist, as an entrepreneur, like, I don't know, just a lot, a lot to explore there. <laughs> yeah, I had these questions a lot before I moved to India. In the studies, I was taking a class with my advisor, Hal Freed, Harold Freed, the economics department at Union and he taught a class called social entrepreneurship and he was also the one of the chaperones on the term abroad to India that I went on as a senior and when I visited Bogru I realized that due to like a, this printer's position in the supply chain they weren't able to 
market and brand and and trade their products on the global scale that the new connected world was working in over the as fast fashion became so popular that it overshadowed these craft industries a lot of indigenous processes and uh, expressions have been lost or are in the process of going extinct endangered you could say and so our mission has always been to like uh, promote this knowledge and protect the knowledge as well we work with an organization called the cultural intellectual property rights initiative headed by monica moisson who's a property rights lawyer based in berlin now and she works with indigenous communities around the world one is called tao the other is called filipina and there's now since in fast fashion and even luxury fashion a lot of designers have appropriated or plagiarized the designs from these indigenous communities they'll have like a, one of their people you know travel around the world get inspiration and sometimes like completely <laughs> take like an indigenous design there's a famous case against Max Mara that recently went through the courts but now with the connected world and like the internet these communities are finally getting protections like any sort of artist in the west like here we ip rights and just like artistic rights are valued at a in a way that like protect the artist or the originator or the inventor of uh, of something whereas in in India and other places uh, around the world those same rights are not given to the same type of communities like artists that's really interesting i mean as we now jeremy had a like huge experience he knows where it is you know sokolechan amjara victoria secret products made in a cheap price and sell it what price like he knows the whole thing and then when i came to this last 5 years the whole feel like the whole from the dream to a product and then the consumers like the whole you know the whole thing it's so sad in india everybody is so skillful but they're so afraid to ask for what they deserve in america so people are entitled they do ask for our money in india they're scared they will be like just give me how much you felt like and i'm not just saying western people anybody the middleman take advantage of that thing and then this artist or this people like never have a freedom of or never they even not proud of what they worth it it's so bad like i'm trying so hard to tell them that hey you should speak up ask for what you want but it's hard and since like the mainstream consumer is being encouraged to consume like a fashion and textiles and clothing a certain way disposable way almost the handmade industry has been affected so much oh, well, but yeah. i think since covid now people are starting to value their the One way they spend money awareness. and i don't know do you think that we've reached the point of overconsumption and the world is so poisoned that there's hard to fix the problem this is like the precipice of uh, our generation a lot of people especially now since of covid they have these feelings of oh like the whole world is just beyond repair or there's these feelings of despair we see like they're they're rich people like the new generations only want to wear like a 
which is called the linen flax, all this beautiful fabric. And then, I mean, he, you or the listener might have a different understanding because okay. you never know like what goes behind the production of a cloth. Particular anything, but let's just take the cloth. We do understand the whole thing so goes the, behind. I mean, the cloth, so cotton is like uh, one of the oldest fiber, fiber that's mm-hmm. been spun into yarns and then woven on looms to make material. It's kind of what brought man into uh, the different field of consciousness, actually. A lot of weaving communities mm. view the loom as this fifth-dimensional object that allows you mm. to make something that covers our body, that makes us different from all the other consciousness right. in the world. I noticed it when I check out the independent... Forget about this whole H&M jar or whatever, the Louis Vuitton. Like, forget about that. That's like... There There are customers who will buy it no matter what. They will like skip their meal to save the money to buy a product. Let's forget about it. But then again, independent designer who say, five person goes to the artist. We do donate to schools. And then when I'm a customer, I'm like, oh my gosh, I bought this. I'm, you know, my mind purchase affecting someone, like helping someone. But does it really doing it? I think it's a time to ask that question. Does it really helping those other people by my choices? Yeah. Those are, they, there are like a lot of these companies now that are trying to go organic or introduce some sort of give back program. There's been a very popular model like uh, buy one, give one, like uh, Bombas and Tom's and I'm sure there's, you know, that's a, that's now kind of like a new business model. Mm So there, that's kind of proof that people aren't necessarily accepting the status quo of how to achieve consumption at a safe level or like what is our relationship between like how our purchase affects our society or development. I mean, yeah, we want to buy the the cheapest available, like the, the cheapest, the available thing. But then we forgot that there's hundreds of people who are connected just to deliver me the thing I want. But we just want the thing, but we forget that how much they're earning in the whole process. Yeah, I mean, the day you start thinking, I think you'll be mindful. And so you, you both talked about this concept of there's still this ongoing cultural appropriation of indigenous cultures being used for this fast fashion in the West. And, you know, it's so interesting to hear about the changing dynamics. And like you said, there's like, always good and bad. Like, I, I mean, if if Jeremy and I ever have children, I, I want them to grow in India. I, I would, I believe that, you know, growing up there with that kind of thing, I make human a different than I think growing up in America and spoiled by choice. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's. Oh, so fascinating, guys. So thank you so much for joining me today for this interview. Really had so much fun getting both of your perspectives and can't wait to see where our spiritual journeys take us all in the future here. Yeah, thanks so much, Jordan. Maybe we'll uh, see where we're at another 15 years down the line. (laughs) I mean, what kind of technology? Was this meta? Metaverse. Metaverse. <laughs> oh man, I don't want that shit. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, I want to be, you know, somewhere in a farm, maybe trying to grow some potato. Maybe the, all the seeds and this cultivation will be gone, maybe by 50 years. Anyway, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to talk. And yeah, let's see. That's amazing. Thanks, awesome. Man. Thanks, guys. Thanks everyone for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. One of the unexpected benefits of starting this podcast was that after I launched it last month, Jeremy reached out on Instagram to reconnect after we hadn't spoken for over 15 years. We got together in Cincinnati a few weeks later, and it was incredible to see how we were able to pick up without missing a beat, despite how much time had passed. And even though our lives' journeys had taken us down completely different paths over those 15 years... We could connect completely on a variety of topics like entrepreneurship, spirituality, and a mutual affinity for Southern Ohio's Serpent Mound. Then as I got to know near Molly, I saw how this interconnectedness extended to her and Jeremy's story as well. That despite coming from what could not have been more different backgrounds on paper, near Molly growing up as an Indian girl near the Himalayas and Jeremy as a Jewish boy in the suburbs of Cincinnati, how the things they shared vastly outstripped the things that separated them. And I think that extends to all the illusions of separateness with which we're inundated on a daily basis, be that race, religion, gender, political party, sexual orientation, nationality, or whatever. That these ideas of separateness may in fact be representations of the baser elements of the human psyche, namely the fear of the unknown. And that when we cut through these illusions, we can start to see that in our essence, we're all seeking the same things. Things like love, family, community, friendship, gratitude, and purpose.